0: ladies and gentlemen and welcome to series two episode six of george ezra and friends the podcast that is the 18th episode all in all across the two series and our guest this week is the one and only nile rogers uh, which is just incredible an absolute privilege to sit down with nile um, Uh, just quickly before we jump into that i would like to say i hope you all had a wonderful christmas holiday uh happy new year i hope you're feeling good stepping into 2019 um i myself i had a lovely time i just you know seeing family and friends that i've not seen anywhere near enough recently so that was lovely um and i'm recording this intro in new york city so if you hear any kind of rumbles and grumbles outside that's because I'm in the heart of it all and it's all kicking off as always um, so yes, this week Niall Rogers um, we met at Abbey Road at some point in 2018 um, now the reason that we met there was because Niall is officially the Chief Creative Advisor for Abbey Road um, so he's kind of got a residency going on there and we met up and we kind of listened through to some of his new stuff uh, we recorded this conversation. We we played around with some ideas as well, which was fun. Um, it feels silly trying to introduce Nile Rogers. Um You know, he's a multi Grammy award winning producer, guitarist, arranger, and composer. Um, I think he should add to that list storyteller. And you'll see why I say that after this episode. It's kind of you ask a question and you let the man roll because he's just got so much to share. Um, I should apologise if at any point it kind of feels like in this episode we go two steps forward and then one step back. I was constantly trying to just keep up with everything going on and the story of Niall's life. It's just, um, it's very full on and amazing. Um, So Niall, thank you very much for spending the afternoon with me, the day with me, I appreciate it a lot. But hey, let's jump into it. This is Nile Rogers. Enjoy. So, I'm sat with Mr. Nile Rogers. How are you?
1: I'm wonderful. Really, Thank really you for really meeting well. me here today. Oh man, my pleasure.
0: I just had the, uh, the pleasure of coming upstairs and hearing some of the tracks for the new album that will one day be released. <laughs> which was amazing thank you for inviting day, me up
1: one day they'll, <laughs> <laughs> they'll come out sometime well i don't know have
0: you got a date do you know yeah, is it all? Yeah, oh yeah, amazing
1: yeah yeah um the official date was going to be um i letting a cat out of the bag it was going to be the 21st of september but my birthday is september 19th okay so we're going to have a huge birthday party here nice which is awesome because we've been shooting the music video. Oh, I should show you some of it. It's insane. We've been shooting the music videos here and it's this sort of episodic, wonderful science fiction type of thing, Amazing. which is what I was talking to the director about when you when you, when you you first sat down next to me.
0: Yeah, I heard you talking about identical twins. Right,
1: right, right. <laughs> and the thing is that th- there's so much interesting eye candy going on in the video because basically... The concept is I've taken, um, I've I've taken three scientific formulas and sort of melded them together um, and mixed them with a musical, musical theory. Mm -hmm. And I've decided, and that's allowed me to open a portal and pull in different people from anywhere on the planet into my recording studio. So I'm pulling in all these different people who are the actual artists on the first three songs and I'm pulling them in and they don't know how they're getting pulled in and how they wind up on my record. Um, but then- um, Do you bother explaining it to them? Hell no. <laughs> <laughs> because like when, you, when you're when you doing a, uh, so basically the the concept was, I've been sort of chasing the high that I got the very first time strangers heard my first song i went to a disco and i didn't know that my friend had made two copies of my song so i so i would love to hear
0: that i really wanted to ask you about everything that was going on as you grew up as you started out in music and you know the scenes and the sounds that you called home right. i guess i know that you grew up in new york yeah yeah and what kind of what was it like to be in a kid in New York, in the fifties and sixties what was that like?
1: It was amazing i mean my my childhood for me, even though people think that it was sad because it looks sad and lonely on paper because my parents were both heroin addicts, so their main preoccupation was the procurement of drugs i mean that's what when you're a heroin addict that's your job <laughs> it's like an all day thing um, so I didn't really have any rules. Like, I could do whatever I want. I got my first job at nine years old. I flew from Los Angeles to New York at seven years old. By myself, you know, it's like, so I could really do anything I wanted. As a matter of fact, I was trying to think of uh, if my mother ever once told me what time to come home. And it was like, she never even had to tell me because i came home when there was nothing to do <laughs> yeah yeah I, you don't have to tell to come home I'll come home when there's nothing I, to do I, I
0: don't know if this is a ignorant question or a nonsense question i don't know but culturally what was heroin then what like what did that mean your life looked like at home you know um
1: it, it well was there a community around that oh yeah that was the there was the modern jazz uh beat poet society folk society uh, folk society uh, but but mainly it was the beatniks um, and and the uh, bebop jazz musicians who were into it the sort of early folk singers weren't that into heroin as a cultural thing Um, they were like marijuana smokers but as a cultural thing it was the jazz musicians and the spoken word the beat poets so you would Growing up with all these characters
0: around you, and that was, you know, completely normal. Oh yeah. What were the normal. what were some was of the characters you were meeting?
1: Oh, Thelonious Monk, Gloria Lynn, um, Nina Simone, um, like everybody. I mean, Miles. They, we, we and they would come to your place. Yeah, my parents knew everybody because see the the. The occupational byproduct of being a drug user is you wind up becoming a drug dealer to support your own habit. So. Oh,
0: okay. So then so these guys were
1: coming to yours? Certain ones of them. So, so, so not all jazz musicians used heroin. Um, but um, a lot did. And even the ones who didn't were all friends with the ones who were doing it. So they were just always around my crib.
0: And how did, were you kind of, I don't know, was there a lot of love for you? Kind of everyone looking out for you? You kind of, you could do no wrong? It's incredible.
1: (laughs) Man, you said it perfectly. I could do no wrong. They all loved me because I was the only kid, basically. And um, it was almost like, you know, playing with someone's dog. (laughs) You go to their house and there's a dog there. It's like, yo, come on, jump on my lap. You know, so... um, and was that an introduction to
0: music for you then? Were, you know, Were you aware that these
1: guys were musicians at that point? V- very much so. But music had always been around me because my biological father was also a very proficient musician. However, he wasn't famous. But New York um, had a very rich musical culture. So... My dad, if you start to think about what we call now, I don't even know if they call them that now, but the studio musician, um, you couldn't make records in the old days without a group of people. And a lot of those people you didn't know because they were just hired hands to make records. Well, that's the kind of guy I am. I grew up in that scene. I still like to keep that vibe alive. I like to bring in new people, hire new people, work with new people, because you're giving that knowledge to the next generation. It's your responsibility because they gave it to you. Yeah, yeah. Right? So you give it to the next ones. So that's why I like working with, you know, you know guys like Disclosure and Avicii and people that I've you know you know now I just started working with Kongs with Valentin you know it's just it's fun for me um and and as I said I take it on as like it's my responsibility people did it for me I'm supposed to do it for others
0: kind of pass on the torch keep the flame absolutely. going absolutely
1: so um so my dad uh used to play with uh, a group called the Paul Whiteman Orchestra Paul Whiteman was actually quite famous. He was called the king of jazz, believe it or not. He was white, though. How could the king of jazz be white? But, you know, he was. And, uh, and, and his manager didn't allow him to use black musicians. But my father was the one guy who played with Paul Whiteman on a regular basis because my father was from the islands and the sort of uh, whole latin percussion things mm. started to come to american music so the samba the bossa nova uh you know the afro-cuban beats the um salsa all that sort of stuff and a lot of the american percussionists didn't know how to do that but my father had it down
0: yeah, That's it, it's i don't know I, that kind of knowing that segregation was still going on where a band couldn't be in that's
1: yeah if you if you read a read up about paul whiteman and see you'll see king of jazz and then you'll probably at some point get to the part where his manager because paul whiteman obviously musicians love musicians like i have very i mean i've been around some of the most hardcore country and western guys and they never get weird they don't go man i don't want those black guys playing with us no, like, no, if you no, can no. hang they want you in the band yeah yeah you know so it's like it's management worried about the look the saleability and the then and then stuff <laughs> like that and america is so segregated it's wacky mm-hmm. um it happened to my band a gazillion times when we'd play in a place, and the manager of the be- of the establishment would come in late, and say, "Well, what are those niggas doing up on my stage?" Meanwhile, the place is going bananas because we know every disco song on the top of the charts, and everybody's dancing to our music. Yeah. So, okay, well, I guess I better let them stay. And then, just so quickly going back,
0: you mentioned this journey from New York to LA at quite a young age. There massively different to one another in so many ways even just climate you know and what was that like being kind of finding yourself in on this the coast you know the west
1: coast sorry LA was really different different and difficult for me uh, for many reasons one because I wasn't with my mother Uh, I was with my paternal grandmother the first time uh, um, she was a devout Roman Catholic then I moved in with my maternal grandmother
0: who was also in
1: California yeah who followed my paternal grandmother out there because she said there's jobs and opportunities and you should come out here and, and it's better And it, it's a very long story but, but that that was the basic thing so the, the two grandmothers moved to California and when my mom got pregnant with her second kid, I was six years old. She was suffering from postpartum depression um, and threatened to kill my little brother. And the doctors, uh, they they decided that my mom was a danger to us. So they moved us out from my mother. Um, so anyway, the, the, Life in California was different for me because I didn't fit in. I spoke like a New Yorker, which is the way I speak now. But in California, to the kids, especially in the ghetto, uh, they mainly came from the South. So they mainly came from places place like Arkansas and Louisiana. And they spoke like, right well, what are you doing, man? What the hell are you up to, man? You know, so they didn't uh, They didn't understand me and I didn't understand but also, them.
0: Kids will just hang on to anything to to yeah, yeah, kids, of course, of course, you know? of
1: course, of course, and I was the t- perfect target, because I always was a weird dresser, because my stepfather was uh, um, into the clothing business, he was Jewish, and, uh, and he was a, an immaculate dresser. So he tried to make me a little mini-me. He tried yeah, to yeah. dress me up like him. So I'm dressing in suits as a little kid with these kids from Arkansas who, who are wearing overalls and boots. And I'm dressed in, you know... Uh, and you weren't questioning it at
0: all. You are just like, this is my style.
1: No, I didn't really dig it because the kids made you feel I- ugly or stupid right away. So I wanted to change but how you do it. So I wound up having to have two identities, clothing. Thank God it didn't rain that often in California, so I would hide my clothes outside, leave the house, change behind the bushes, go to school, and then change when I got back. But see, you, you're delving into this. It's, uh, you, you, you're gonna make me tell two the stories too long because no, then the, I gotta, the,
0: man, I just all of it's amazing. Yeah, and,
1: and I got away with that for a very long time until one day it rained. <laughs> <laughs> that was an so interesting like, story. Well, 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 Mama, how do I explain this? <laughs> well, I'll tell you. Um, but yeah, it worked for a long time. And so, is there,
0: your time in L.A., is there parts of that you can hold on to as significant musically for you as well?
1: Yeah, L.A. was really the part that changed my life. I mean, L.A. was, uh, well, there There have been about four or five big seismic shifts in my musical development. The first one happened in L.A. Uh, I used to play... Uh, Now, this was, I was in junior high school at this point. I was in the symphony orchestra, and we were really good. I I, I, I met a person only a few years ago who was my limo driver in in, uh, Hawaii, and he just happened to go to the same school, and we talked about being in that symphony orchestra and how great it was. It was, like, amazing. But it was still in the hood, right? So it was like even though it was mainly black kids who lived there, there was a a large influx of Japanese. Um, I guess after World War II, they they re-ghettoized California. There were a lot of Japanese in our particular part of LA, and our band was exceptional, because these kids took that, they were serious. They covered our butts, and we were killing, man. So we had this great symphony orchestra, and at that point i was playing clarinet and um i didn't play any pop music even though i loved it because we danced to r&b you know all the you know all all the records that were on the local r&b station that's what we played at the at the junior high school dance and uh we used to go to the skating rink which was the thing that we did was roller skating to like r&b music that was the coolest thing ever and we would get dressed up to go to the roller skating rink it was a thing and um and i remember um one day going to the skating rink and instead of taking public transportation we would hitchhike that way we could save the money and spend it on you know candy and sodas and stuff like that the problem was is that if you were hitchhiking you didn't know who would pick you up and what time you'd get there, and the skating rink was in session. So it was, I don't remember if it was three-hour sessions or four-hour sessions, but they would turn the crowd over every three or four hours. So we got there in, in between one of the sessions, and we weren't going we to waste the money and not skate a whole session. So we decided to kill time and wait for the next session. Whilst we were chilling and just like hanging around, we saw all these white guys that we had never seen before with really long hair. And it looked like their hair had covered their eyes and their faces. They looked like shaggy dogs. And me and my friend looked at them now and we're like, wow, who are those dudes? Let's go check them out. Just quickly, how old would you have been at this point? I would have been around 14. okay, And I was a glue sniffer. That was our thing, we used to go get snoop. we would get we would get uh, uh we, we would get glue and get the little bags out of the popcorn machine and they were like the perfect size and we, we had it down <laughs> sniff the glue and we go out skating we saw these dudes and normally i was i was a very shy kid but after you sniffed glue you became pretty jovial and so we went and we started talking to these guys and they looked so peculiar to us we said man who are you and they said that they were freaks and we say freaks oh I didn't tell you that what happened was when I lived in Los Angeles I was so um, how do I I say it Um, not just discriminated against by the 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 teachers at the school but the kids everybody rejected me so I cut school I I, I never went to school I used to to uh, go downtown to a part of Los Angeles called Skid Row and watch the movies they had grindhouse movie theaters where you just pay to get in and they show like five features it was amazing so I'd sit there all day watching movies so when those guys said that they were freaks I had already seen the movie Freaks I said you mean like Like freaks, we accept them, we accept them. One of us, one of us, goonie gobble, goonie gobble. And they started cracking up and they went, oh wow man, spade cats. And they said, hey man, you guys wanna take a trip? And we said, sure, we had, uh, you know, we had at least another hour and a half to kill. So we said, yeah, we'll take a trip with these guys. We had no idea they were talking about taking LSD. We had never even heard of LSD. We didn't know what the hell they were talking about. So we drove with these guys up into the Hollywood Hills, which wasn't far from where we were. And we met this guy, Dr. Timothy Leary, and we took acid, and uh, I didn't return home for two days. (laughs) 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 And when I left, I was like the kid from the symphony orchestra dancing to R&B, and I came home singing this is the end Do do doom doo, doo, beautiful friend mother yes son i want to kill you father i want to kill you da, 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 da. and i was like in the gloria g-l-o-r-i-a, gloria. For, so for two days i just listened to the doors and them and the trogs and that's it and had sex with like a million girls was unbelievable i was 14 years old and like having sex with women was like wow like but i I had died and gone to heaven and um i came home and when i got home the cops were there waiting for me because my grandmother thought that i'd been kidnapped or something i was my suit was tattered and. i shouldn't really,
0: laugh but it's just <laughs> it
1: was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was really it was really funny i mean when you think about it because i left one way and when i came back like i said there was a seismic shift mm. in everything music everything i yeah you know, i spoke differently i had a whole new vocabulary um and that all developed in just two days i decided that I wanted to play rock and roll so I put down the clarinet and picked up the guitar because that was the rock and roll instrument um for some reason I thought I'd be able to play guitar rather easily because I had been around symphony orchestras a lot so I knew what everything did but the guitar was a different beast it had really nothing to do with the symphony orchestra uh And of course I had to play the electric guitar. I mean, that was the thing, you know, I had to play like the Ventures and stuff. Um, And the whole psychedelic thing was just, just like chomping at my heel, just, I had to be that guy. Uh, My grandmother passed away and uh, just suddenly she got cancer. And I had to go back to New York to live with my mom. At that point, my mom, had gotten over the depression, and she had already had another couple of kids. And, and somehow I convinced her to buy me a guitar for my birthday. And she brought me, uh, sh- she bought me a, a very cheap electric guitar. Um, and, uh, and I was sort of on my way. I had, didn't know how to tune it, it was wacky. And I bought a Beatles song book and just started practicing the positioning. And because of my classical... uh, What was the first song you tried to tackle from the Beatles book? I don't remember what the first one that I tried, but the first one that I got down was A Day in the Life. And it was completely by accident, because I was practicing and I loved that song so much. I wanted to get it right. Um, So I kept following the fingering positioning Um, and I thought that I just didn't, wasn't pressing properly. And I was trying to interpret the the concept of embouchure, the positioning of your mouth on the mouthpiece to the fingering, the positioning of my fingers on the strings. I just, I couldn't understand why it seemed like I was doing it right, but it didn't sound right. was making some sort of harmonic presentation because i had tuned the guitar to something that was perceivably correct to my ears but it had nothing to do with the way that the guitar was laid out um so it was making pretty sounding stuff but not an F chord. <laughs> and my mother's boyfriend at the time came home and heard me and said, what the hell are you doing now? What do you got that thing tuned like? What is that, a banjo or something? Hold on a second. And he retuned the guitar for me, and then I proceeded to play the songbook. And the first thing I played was the chord, and it sounded amazing. I was like, whoa. And it was great. And then I played the second chord, and it was great. And then I played the third chord, and it was great. And then I started at the beginning, and I went very slow, and I went, boom i read the news today oh boy don't don't about a lucky man who made the gray and of course i knew the record so well so i went figured out how to go dun, 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 dun. <laughs> <laughs> i was into it you I, was, I was like i said man from that moment i felt felt like sir edmund hillary like i was at the standing at the top of mount everest going <laughs> From, I've arrived.
0: Yeah, and from that moment, did you ever put the guitar down?
1: Nope. Or was it obsession? That's that my life changed in an instant. It was a complete seismic shift. So I, but the thing that was so fantastic was because I had played the B-flat clarinet in the symphony orchestra. I had a ton of, you know, student study books, etudes. Um... And the written range of the B flat clarinet is exactly the same as the guitar. So it was like, wow, I could play all these songs and can just practice, practice reading music. Um, so I was like playing all these songs in the first position and it was like amazing. I was like, wow, I could do this. This was like cool. And then I start moving to the third position. I'm like, man, I could do this. This is incredible. And, and so then I, was able to get enough money to buy a guitar book, um, Classical Etudes. And I was like going, this is fantastic. It was just so, it was coming so easy to me. Um, And I don't know if you know anything about guitar players, but they typically are notoriously poor readers. And because the guitar is one of those instruments, we sort of learn by feel. You, You meet dudes on the street and they go, hey man, here's how you play a C chord. Here's how you play a G chord. And then you teach a kid one or two songs, and they go home and write a hit record. Yeah. Uh, also,
0: <laughs> most of the time, you're, you the people that are teaching you are actually teaching you their bad habits. Is is that you know uh, uh, they've picked up? And people get like a combination of a load of people's kind of dirty habits, and then you make your own style. The is mean, how yeah, I see yeah.
1: it. Yeah. I never looked at it that way, but <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So you just do that and. But the fact that I had, I could note read and then learn the, their chord thing from them and and I understood the concept of tertiary harmony. I understood all that stuff theoretically before I even picked up the guitar. So it was like I had something to aim for and when I hit it, I went, boom, there it is. Doom, there it is. Doom, there, it is. Doom, there it is. So... Um, And once the guitar was tuned and I knew what the notes were and where they should be, um, I just stuck to that. I never became like an alternative tuning kind of guy or any of that. I just stuck with standard guitar tuning and I treated it like, boom, that's a piano. Like you buy a piano, that's how it's tuned. You stick to that. Um, And I wound up becoming a guitar player like a working one, I I think in less than two years, like I was gigging like, like a like real gigs, like adult gigs. Uh, in less than two years, I got my gig at Sesame Street. The first time I auditioned, and that didn't come as a surprise. The
0: the kind of idea of you being a gigging guitarist quite quickly made sense to you. It was like
1: yeah, I can do this. I don't know if I ever thought about it that way. I just did it. I mm. mean that that's everybody sort of gigged it's just that you might have sucked but you start, you you still gig like there were bands that were bad uh and bands that were good and bands that were exceptional i never had to play in a bad band i always played in a good band and many times they were all exceptional so i uh but I was around bands that sucked. <laughs> it was like around, <laughs> you know, it was like, we'd like go, how are these guys even on the show with us? Like, where did they come from?
0: And was Sesame Street, a t- was that a touring gig?
1: Yeah, it was a touring gig. All across and America. That was an exceptional band. Yeah. All across the world. Sesame Street in its first year not only captured the hearts, minds and souls of Americans, but it was exported, I believe, to Canada, uh, South Africa, Because I I remember when we went to Toronto and we picked up these kids who were hitchhiking um, and brought them across the American border and they were like flipping out. It was like, wow, this is so cool. (laughs) And they get on the bus (laughs) with Big Bird and we're like smuggling them into America.
0: And did you you instantly feel as if touring suited you as well? Was that kind of like, oh, this, I don't need to question this. I like this lifestyle.
1: Yeah, that's what a musician did i mean gigging we just gig if you did it in the bar or on the road or you just a person called you and you were available and you could do it you just did it that's how my band still is now it's just but occasionally
0: i've had it on tour where somebody's joined a tour and it's just obvious it's not for them Mm -hmm. and they don't last very long Hmm. you know i've experienced
1: that i don't know those people (laughs) we come from a school where it's not an option yeah Yeah, yeah. it's totally not an option it's a we gig Um, even when you get older you gig i mean like look at how many people i know who are superstars that are rich they gig yeah yeah. you know they don't have to they just gig we i'm trying to think of friends of mine who don't gig like i don't know who that is anymore
0: yeah and it, it, so every, by this point, y- you must be 16, 17. Yeah. What was, was it still R&B? Is that what yeah, you were yeah, going yeah. out and dancing well, to? Well, and
1: we were, so, so here's the deal. Um, I, I became obsessed with jazz and classical as a guitarist. Jazz I was obsessed with since I was born because that's what was in my house, so I had no choice. Um, um, And then I became obsessed with jazz as a player. I wanted to be that guy. Um, I also wanted to be a terrific classical player. Um, And through a series of... uh, one might say unfortunate, but in fact, they were fortunate incidents. I actually did well, but because I did so well, I decided that that wasn't the life for me because there wasn't any future in it. But, and you really had to work hard, and then for what, to play for like 10 or 15 people uh, with classical music. With jazz, it was a little bit more fun. It was a lot more fun because there was a lot of jazz clubs in New York and also when you did jazz gigs, you could play straight, what we call straight ahead, but you could also play the top 40. So you could play, the, there were like there were a lot of clubs in New York like that, at least there were. So you had a good mixture um, on your set list. Uh, sometimes you'd play clubs that were exclusively R&B and they didn't want to hear any jazz unless it was one of these. Jazz records that had crossed over that from from a label like CTI or something like that, and Red Clay or Herbie Hancock's Headhunters or something, but but typically you were playing, you know, Karate Boogaloo, now baby, you know, stuff like that, you know, whatever, or do 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 so. <SP1> or skin tight so that that was the thing and that was called the chitlin circuit so you were playing a string of r&b clubs that went all the way from I guess around buffalo from buffalo all the way down to Louisiana and we just like do those gigs we'd even wind up in St. Louis and places like that and that, that, was, that was really cool and then uh, Bernard Edwards, I met him while I was doing the Sesame Street Apollo Theater gig. And I was doing sort of both those.
0: Oh, can we talk about the Apollo Theater gig? Sure, today? sure. Because sure. That, so you were part of the house band?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And that really is, in my eyes, that's the deep end. There's, it's like a rolling stage of star after star comes up on stage, yeah, yeah, yeah. plays a handful of songs, right? and you need to know what's going on. Yeah,
1: that. The, so the Apollo, when I was there, was was basically um, uh, a review format, so they would put up on the marquee like ten different names, you know, Rufus Thomas, blah blah blah. blah, 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 blah. And meanwhile, those people would just have one or two hits, so they'd play those two songs, and then somebody else would come on. You play those two songs or three songs, and somebody else would come on. And that was our that was a typical Apollo gig when I was there. Russell used to be in the Apollo Theater house band too. Um, And I don't know if it was that review-like when he was there. Was it super review format when you did it? Only when we were doing the TV show. Right. For the Wednesday night
0: amateur night, it was mostly about the contestants. Right. But when we did the TV tapings, they had more artists coming in, and it would be that type of review type thing for those artists. Right.
1: So, yeah, so I, when I played the... The Apollo Theatre, it was a real working vaudeville type of theatre in the community, and it was open, like, every day, and you gigged every day. What time would
0: it close? Would I it don't know.
1: I, I, you didn't think about things like that. But was it what? I mean, is it... Whatever when time it, was supposed to close. Okay. Late night. Yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. It, it wasn't... The Apollo was a regular theatre. It was a union house, so it... Um, It operated basically under the same rules that other union houses ran under. Uh, So you finish playing at the Apollo and then go out to a nightclub that was open later. Like Apollo didn't stay open until 4 a.m. Okay, I see.
0: (laughs) And so so everything that you're talking about so far, you've been a part of the backing, you know, of supporting people. Yeah, yeah. Something happens whereby you're then in a band your own band yeah how was that how did that come about and how was that exactly what happened
1: uh we were we were backing this group called new york city that had one hit i'm doing fine now without you baby i'm doing fine now so we toured all over the world on that one hit record then they did a second album which uh is this with bernard as well yes bernard bernard was the band leader and this album that they did the second album didn't uh net any hits so we broke up and what happened is that we broke up our last gig was here in um in England, and uh, we were staying in London at the time. I was right up on Bayswater and, and Queensway, um, and, uh, and we were loading up the coach to go to Heathrow, and somehow someone stole my bag, which had my money and my passport in it. So they had to leave me. But fortunately, I had a girlfriend that I was dating, and I went and I moved into her apartment for a weekend uh, until the american embassy opened on monday and then i would go apply for a passport and do the whole thing and um but she had a really great job she was a hostess at a club called churchills and even though i never went to churchills uh, but they said it was a hostess club and people like lord Mountbatten would go there and get paddled by the girls and stuff like that. Something like that, you know. I went, what is a hostess club? I didn't understand what that meant. Like to me, hostess was, they made cupcakes in America. (laughs) I I was like, it's a hostess club. I was like, Jesus, really? You guys are gonna eat Twinkies and cupcakes? And like, wow. And she said, no, no, it's a hostess club. And blah, blah, blah. And this is when um, a lot of wealthy Arabs started to come to America. So, these guys would, um, call our apartment and pretend to want to marry her. And they would offer me like camels and money and stuff like that. And I pretend like I was a father. It was hysterical. It was was really, really silly stuff. And then one day she said to me, um, that she wanted to take me out to see her favorite band. And I said, okay, cool, let's go. And, um, and her favorite band was this group called Roxy Music, and I had never heard of Roxy Music. So we went to see Roxy Music, and I think they were playing at some joint called the Roxy Theater or something like that. and The Roxy Playhouse or whatever. And we went there, and from the word go, I was blown away. It was all beautiful people, like my girlfriend at the time, she was beautiful. She was. This Swedish girl, the Swedish hostess at Churchill's, and she was like, phew, like pow, um, and the Roxy Music audience looked like that. They were all like fabulous, and then Roxy Music came out in designer clothing, and I was like, oh, whoa, I've never seen a band dressed like that. To me, every band that I was in was either a band that wore uniforms, like the Jackson Five or the uh, or the Ohio Players. Uh, or they were rock and roll bands, and whatever we wore that morning is exactly what we wore when we did the gig. You know, we didn't go home and change. We're like it's the same thing. I always make fun of uh, <laughs> of the Edge, and I go Edge. Like whatever you put on that morning, you go out in front of fifty thousand people. That's <laughs> 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 you know, with with Chic, you know, we got to get dressed to go yeah, and yeah. do the show. there, well, yeah, you do, when you're in U2, you just what are we wearing tonight, guys? <laughs> like, I don't think YouTube two does that. They just go play. <laughs> so um, I saw this group that obviously had coordinated stuff. And it wasn't the coordinated look like in the early 60s when Herman's Hermits. It wasn't that. It was coordinated couture. It was like, wow. Everybody was making their own beautiful statement. And I, was, and I, was, and I called up Bernard and I said, man, we got to figure out a way to do the black version of this. And uh, I returned home when I got my passport. And and, uh, we started to put together this thing. We, We were already called the Big Apple Band. And we started to put together a new Big Apple Band that was now in the tradition of Roxy Music.
0: Okay, so you were so inspired by the Roxy Music gig that it wasn't you know it was the the way they looked on stage were you also taken influence by the way they sounded
1: yeah absolutely it was definitely uh they didn't sound like the typical rock and roll band that i had been playing in and not not at all i mean the, the roxy music was an elegant interesting different thing um and we were like going okay so we had to figure out a way to make that B. <laughs> we had to figure out a way to make that um, we, we wanted to be identified with being more of a European modal type of band than a blues-based funk band. We wanted to be a modal funk band, if you, you, you know what I mean? We, we had to, it's, um, it's something that I used to always call band, B-A-N-D, band logic, never to be confused with actual logic. But to us, it makes all the sense in the world. Okay, I like that. <laughs> so we say, all right, so the band logic is this. We're going to be these dudes. We're going to come from France. Really? And we're going <laughs> to play this French modal stuff, but with cool jazz chords. And now we're going to have to go out and find the people to fit this thing. Um, so we found this guy named Rob Sabino, a keyboard player. Um, and... Uh, And he had been friends with this group called KISS. And we went out to see KISS one night, and we were like, wow, this is it. This is it. KISS meets Roxy music, that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna be a black version of KISS meets Roxy music. So we'll have the anonymity. And the reason why we thought KISS was so amazing, because we went to see them at this club and people were going bananas. I mean, they they had no record deal, they had a crowd, people were going crazy. And then when they took off their makeup, they sat in the audience and no one had no, they had no idea who they were. And and Gene Simmons is a tall guy. So you would think that people would just go, hey, you're pretty tall, aren't you Gene Simmons? But with his platforms on, he was even taller. I mean, he was like ridiculously tall. So he just looked like a tall guy at the KISS show. And so I sat down, I was talking to Ace Frehley, and, uh, and we chatted, and he was great friends with our keyboard player, Rob Sabino. And we really got along, and we were like, oh, sh-, the wheels were turning. And then we uh, uh, met this drummer, Tony Thompson, who was just with this group called LaBelle. And LaBelle was already into fantasy fusion. They were already into dressing up and doing all sorts of, like, you know, they were wearing costumes, but they weren't wearing costumes like the Jackson 5 or the Ohio Players. They were wearing these futuristic-looking things that looked like couture clothing to us. So we got Tony. Tony was very handsome. He seemed to fit the vibe. And, um... So now we had guitar, bass, drums, and keyboards. We were pretty set to go at that point. We are like, this is cool. So we were gonna do the first Big Apple Band recording so the Big Apple band, we go in and we record this song that I had written called Everybody Dance. At this point, Bernard didn't write with me.
0: Can we uh, quickly just say, sorry to interrupt, but can we quickly just give a bit of a backstory of who Bernard is? Because I feel like oh, I, I, no, but I jumped over that, but it's really important
1: yeah. for the story. So, so Bernard Edwards was uh, my bass player from the moment he and I played together uh my i was living with my girlfriend in america at the time doing just r&b pickup gigs and she told me she says you know i work with this cat at the post office i never heard him play but i know he's cool i could just feel that he's cool because my my girlfriend's mother she was a woman who only went out with jazz music and she was a white woman who only dated black jazz musicians and her kids were half black and she she was that cool, the cool white chick, she was that woman. And everything was cool to her and and this guy is cool and you know, you should meet him. So um, I'm I'm gonna give the cat your phone number. So she gives him my phone number and he calls the apartment. And at this time I'm still this hippie, wacko guy and uh, weird hair and weird clothes, which I I just can't help it. I always have loved weird hair and weird clothes. So uh, so Bernard calls me up and he says, uh, hey, man, um, I hear you're putting together a band. Betty told me you were pretty dope on. I mean, he probably didn't say dope, but whatever the equivalent was of those. days, you're probably pretty groovy on a guitar. And I said, "Yeah, man. You know, like I want to put together a band. You know, it's a cross between uh, like Fairport Convention, man. You know, meets Country Joe and the Fish, <laughs> a little um, Mahavishnu thrown in, man. Maybe a little Return to Forever, man. You know. And of course, man, we got to do a little Jimmy." And Bernard look, looked at the phone and went, "Yo, my man, lose my number. Bip, click, and hung up the phone on." <laughs> And it was like i totally turned him off and what happened is there was a real good friend of mine who was another jazz guitar player who was bouncing around doing these weekend gigs and normally the the standard rate for doing these gigs was 15 dollars we called them 15 centers but every now and then you get a job that paid 25 30 or $40. So he had gotten a 25 or or 30 or $40 job, so he gave me his 15 center. So I went and did his 15 center, and the bass player was Bernard Edwards. Unbeknownst to me, it was the same guy who had told me to lose his number, and he didn't know that I was that guy either, because that's how short the telephone call was. As soon as I said, hey, man, you know, Fiat Convention meets Country Joe and the Fish, man, you know. Maybe the Blues Project, Lou Jimmy. You know, it was like, sh- click, lose my number. <laughs> um, so, but when I got to the gig, I was a little bit late because my friend called me at the last moment because he had just gotten the gig paying more money. So when I walked in, the band was playing Sissy Strut, and that's an R&B standard, and they were playing it in the key of C. And I ran in with my big jazz guitar and we were playing Do and somehow I played the next riff in chords. I went blip 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 I inverted it or something like that. And he went like, Damn, that's cool. And then we were into each other like for the whole night. He was like, going, man, you're doing all these inversions. I mean, you're like, we don't need a keyboard player. Um, so he says, "You know, every gig that I do from now on, I'm gonna try and get you on. I said, wow, I was thinking the same thing. Every gig I get you on, I'm gonna, you know, every gig I get from now on, I'm gonna say, hey, I got a bass player that we should hire. So he and I became inseparable from that moment. So this predated him getting the job as band leader of New York city. So we were doing all sorts of pickup gigs until he got the big gig, which was New York city and the New York city gig was great. Cause then we became the opening act for the Jackson five. Okay, brilliant. OJs. So
0: Bernard brought you in onto the New York city gig. Yeah. And then jump forward after you've lost your passport in London and everything like right. that. We
1: were with New York city. Uh, okay. Okay.
0: Yeah. So then when you, Then you start putting the band together.
1: Because I saw Roxy Music. See, he he had just come back home. Okay, cool. So he was still into the vibe of the Big Apple band. We were great. New York City broke up, but our band was still really good. Did it take much convincing on the
0: Roxy Music thing? Or once you had introduced him to it, did he get it?
1: He got it, but the other guys didn't get it, which is why they weren't in the band, because they would have been fantastic. Our drummer at the time in... uh, the Big Apple band, this guy named Clyde, she was like an amazing drummer. And our keyboard player, Leslie, was fantastic. I mean, but they just couldn't get with, you know, Roxy music. Uh, and the thing is, is that we were also playing disco, we were playing whatever was on the top 40. So Roxy music was just our vibe. But we were still going to play disco in the top 40. We, were just, we just weren't going to do it in like what, we used to, what Bernard used to call monkey suits. <laughs> 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 he said, we're just not going to wear no monkey suits. We're going to wear designer clothes and be from France. I was like, okay, well, why France? Because in America, everybody thinks French people are sophisticated. Boom, okay, cool. Makes sense to us. Band logic, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so we were still the Big Apple band. We were gigging and when you go and you see videotapes of us on youtube you see bernard and, and myself are the only ones who are wearing jackets the rest of the band are still like you know rock and roll and um because they weren't having it um and something really interesting happened uh, a guy that i went to school with um named walter murphy put out a disco version of beethoven's fifth and he called it a fifth of beethoven and it was It became huge. It was a big... And Saturday Night Fever, it was like the bomb. It was a big disco record. But he called himself Walter Murphy and the Big Apple Band. So he and I went to the same school together. So naturally, everybody thought it was us. They thought it was our Big Apple Band, but it was not. And Bernard had suggested well before we called ourselves Chic that we call ourselves Chic and Tony and I laughed at him and thought he was ridiculous. Like, the Big Apple Band is cool and represents New York. Sophistication, blah, 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 blah. Then when Walter Murphy came out with Walter Murphy and the Big Apple Band, Bernard says, hey, what if we call ourselves Chic? Yeah, (laughs) we thought,
0: that's a really great idea. (laughs) Why didn't you say it sooner?
1: (laughs) But now at this point, we had already met Kiss. And so now it was like all of a sudden these four letters became the uppercase four-letter bands became important. Kiss, Abba, Roxy. It was all of a sudden like this should make sense. It was like, you know things just yeah, yeah. started to fall into place. It's what I called and still call convergence. Things just started to align, even though we didn't necessarily have anything to do with it. Like why was this group that had no record deal all of a sudden signed and happening. And we had seen them before that. Now they're signed and they got this big logo in uppercase letters, KISS. So we actually identified in a weird way uh, more with KISS than ABBA or Roxy as far as our logo is concerned. That's why, I mean, and, and this was total band logic. I mean, mm. we had it worked out. It was like, KISS. So they have two S's, we have two C's, they have an I, we have an I, and they have a K, hey, we have an H right next to it, H-I-J, <laughs> Kiss, Chic, we're right there, it makes all the sense in the world to us. So um, Kiss, Roxy, Chic, boom, put it together, comes out as black guys with... Um, doing disco to jazz chord changes. It was like, all made complete sense to us.
0: Here we are at the halftime break, the kind of interval of the episode. Uh, This is where I take the opportunity to let you know what I'm what I'm busying myself with at the moment it's kind of hard to say because even now sat in front of the diary I'm still yet to do a day's work in 2019 <laughs> which I feel very cheeky about uh, but I, I'm looking at the diary it all kicks off tomorrow we've got promo all around America uh, for the next kind of three weeks two and a bit weeks um, and then we are heading over to australia we've got a show in dubai in fact so we're playing a show in dubai which will be a first if you have bought a ticket for that thank you very much i can't wait to see you that's very exciting um very exotic um and then yeah we're heading over to australia and we have a tour uh, which sold out very quickly in scary big rooms and yeah it's just going to be an absolute pleasure to play those shows uh <laughs> I can't wait it's going to be fun to be back in Australia I just I can't believe how much time we get to spend in Australia at the moment I love it um, yeah so if you're going to be at one of those shows I'm very excited looking forward to seeing you so other than that yeah we. I mean it's all been booked in for a while so we've got big tours you know in the middle of the year there'll be festivals I'm sure um, I mean it's, it's as if I'm being coy and not telling you which festivals I'm booked for the truth is I'm kind of unaware at the moment. I'm sure I have been booked for one or two, but I, I, my my head goes to scrambled eggs when I think too far ahead. Um, so anyway, yes, we're going to be busy. I'm sure that we will perform with and for a lot of you this year. Um, I'm very excited for it all. Thank you to all of you for your support, especially around Christmas. I mean, the album it's just stuck around when I say the album that is my second album it's called Staying at Tamara's um, uh, Tamara was a host of a, an apartment I stayed in in Barcelona for a month and I kind of just got my ideas together and wrote this album um, and yeah there's a lot of songs about dreaming and escaping and just switching off and uh, yeah it, it's just done phenomenally well and that's I'm not saying that in a kind of boastful way, you know, me puffing my chest up, I just, I'm saying it in a completely surprised and flattered way. It's done amazingly well, um, and it's a lovely thing to be a part of, so thank you very much for all of your support. Now, I think this might be a good time to hear a word from our sponsors. So other than that, as always, if you feel like you could do with a little bit more George Ezra in your life, then georgeezra.com is ready and waiting for you, and there you will find information far Far more information than I can give you about dates and tours coming up. There's also merchandise and videos, music of course, all of that good stuff. There is a journal that I write once a week and uh, if you sign up for the journal then once a week it will land in your inbox and I just simply tell you about what's been going on in my world, which is nice, I enjoy doing that. Um, yeah. I'm rambling So let's jump back into it This is Nile Rogers.
1: We run into the studio Now we were Now that we weren't uh, The Big Apple band anymore We now became Luther Vandross's Touring band So we were gigging with Luther Vandross And I was the only writer So I'm writing chic songs now And uh, And for whatever reason, and it's, an, it's another story, so I don't want to get into another story, but I write my first song for Sheik, and it was called Everybody Dance, doo do do doo clap your hands. So um, we had a studio booked, and we were working with Luther, and we didn't have any singers, so we asked Luther, we said, hey man, can you sing on our record? And he was like, sure, no problem, and he brought his group over. And uh, we played the track, and he was like, "Wow, that's really great music, man!" No, shoot. And Luther already knew that I played cool and mm. stuff because I used to play on his record. So he was like, "He was down." And I had also gotten Bernard a gig playing bass with Luther because that was our deal. Anytime mm. I got a gig, I'm trying to get my man on the gig. So now all of a sudden, Luther had this cool new sound. Even though we were still playing his music, it just sort of upped the game a little bit. The problem was, is that we got a hit record right away. <laughs> we did a single <laughs> called Everybody Dance, and even though that didn't get us a record deal, it made people aware. So then this was the story that you first started to tell right
0: at the beginning, and this is the one where your engineer, was it? Was he the right. DJ? He the started engineer. spinning
1: it without... Right. Without our knowledge. And he, it's going off. It's like you... Did. Like going crazy. And he calls me up one night, and he says, Nile you just got to come down here and see this. And I say, see what? He says, I can't, I can't explain it to you. Words can't explain. You got to come and see it. So I walk into the club, filled with smoke. He sees me walk in. As soon as he see, sees me walk in, he starts cracking up. And he's laughing his head off. And I don't know why he's laughing. And he plays the record and goes, and a blood-curdling scream goes, ah everybody jumps on the dance floor. Boom, boom, boom. Do do Now, the song has no um, melody for the verses, it's just the chord changes. At this point. But it does have a chorus, and it's Luther Vandross and all those guys, and it's singing beautiful and it's great. Everybody dance. Do do Clap your hands. And the whole club is singing this, and then it would just go boom bump, bum, bum, bum. Oh, right. And I had a guitar lick, so I had a guitar melody. It was sort of like jazz meets mm-hmm. disco. So I was playing doom, doo doom, doom, You know, like, and people were digging it. It was like great, and then everybody damn. So this crazy jazzy melody and everybody dances the hook and people were just flipping out so we would bring different a and r people to see this phenomenon because you could only hear it at one club because you had to go to this club to hear it couldn't get a record deal but we met other musicians in this process and bernard was hired to do a record date and it was for the new york board of tourism and every single in those days, even though you could put out a single, you also had to put out an A side and a B side. So, usually, what people would do in those days, a very common practice was you hire the musicians to do the A side and the B side, you just give them some money and they make up a song. You keep all the publishing <laughs> and say they didn't even write it. <laughs> and, you know, and musicians, if they're good, they're going to do something that sounds pretty good. So, So, Bernard. And this guy named Kenny Lehman uh, did something that sounded pretty good, but it wasn't a complete song. So Bernard was not what we would call a songwriter then, but, but but Kenny had written the A side and the B side, they just threw something together. So Kenny knew I was a songwriter, so he called me up and said, hey man, can you come and write something on this song that I did? And as soon as I heard the bass playing, I knew it was Bernard because he's the only guy who plays like yeah. that. I said, "Dude, you you can't." I said, "All you have is like drums, keyboards, and Bernard. How are you gonna not like the drums and keyboards? That they they're interchangeable, but that bass line is ridiculous. Let me write something to just the drums and that bass line." and oh, i see, see. I so come. you were just like L- let me have a go let me just write a top
0: line on." Well, it. he this- asked me to okay do it. Nice.
1: so i said this is how to do it because the th- the keyboard part sucked to me it made no it was like this is totally lame but the bass part was ridiculous i was like get rid of that keyboard shit because they were just trying to make a song that they could put out as a b-side but it but it just wasn't happening and kenny knew it so he gave it to me and uh and Bernard was playing. So then I started writing, and um, so I had to make a whole arrangement by just playing to those two instruments. So I started with this little bleep, 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 and so I didn't write dance 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 I didn't write that I wrote I just dance 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 all of the time cuz now I had gotten away with doo 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 do, doo do, doo do, 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 do. so I had written this I just dance, dance 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 all of the time I just dance 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 all the time So I said you know I think we should bring Bernard in on the the writing cuz it really is just his line and me—I mean, how mm-hmm. can we cut him out? So Bernard came and heard what I had done on guitar, and it was just guitar. Just now it was just guitar and drums, and his bass, and me singing this vocal. <laughs> Bernard looked at me and said, "Yo, my man, why are you doing all this complicated shit? You got two or three songs in there." And I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "Why?" Well, why don't you just go dance, dance, dance? Like because I mean it was cool. Whatever, it was cool. Or do ding 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 ding. I said, man, look at how great everybody dance was getting over. This is cool melody. So I don't know, man. I think we should just call it dance, dance, dance. So we just sang dance, 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 and we called Luther Vandross up and said, hey, come in and sing this. And he sang, dance, 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 and then I, all of a sudden, Luther wrote, had nothing to do with me and Bernard, but, you know, studio musicians, we always write for each other. Mm-hmm. Luther thought of, keep on dancing. Like, we didn't write that far. It was just like, he just felt that it wasn't enough to just go, dance, dance, dance 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 dance. he went keep on
0: dancing
1: and we're like woo! we got a hook now and from that one song we were able to get our record deal and uh and so at that time you know a record deal means a lot even
0: today it means that certain doors are then open and things become more realistic what You were being signed off the back of disco songs at
1: this point. A disco song. We only got one record. But then we got a deal for one song, not an album.
0: Okay. So then you're being signed off the back of a disco song. What was disco to you back then? Like when you walk into that club and you see everybody dancing to this song, what's the feeling that came with disco? Was it a kind of
1: inclusive, inviting scene? That's, yeah, I couldn't say it better. That's exactly what it was. It was like, we felt like we were outcasts who were loved by people who knew this secret that we didn't know, but they would teach it to us how to dance to this kind of music how to meet these kinds of girls, how to dress a certain way, because we were already pretending to be that, because we mm-hmm. had the whole Roxy music vibe in our heads, but we still hadn't gotten there yet. But the music that we were writing was somehow, uh, w- was somehow that thing, even though you didn't. there were no pictures of us or anything, we knew that's who we were writing for. We had identified our audience and said, let's do music for them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cause we know who they are. Cause we saw them and they were just coming up in America and they were called the buppies, the black urban professionals. And that's, that was the, the society that spawned Oprah Winfrey, President Obama. That's who we were doing music for. It was those young buppies. And those were the people who wanted to get ahead in society. They were getting gigs on Wall Street. And all of a sudden, you know, black people were, like I said, black urban professionals. So we had, you know, from when I was a kid, we had hippies, then we had uh, yippies, then we had yuppies, then we had buppies.
0: And buppies, I guess it all comes into this whole, they've got cash in their pocket they're working in the city and they need to go and burn it somewhere right and you're the soundtrack to that that's
1: bro you're the man you got it exactly right absolutely you want to go to clubs where fabulous people are which is why chic and studio 54 basically came out exactly the same time it was all about fabulous even though america was going through the greatest financial recession since the Great Depression. But that's not what you want to live like. You want to act like things were great. And
0: do you, with every new movement in music or in culture, there's always people in the wings that are saying, it's not as good as it used to be. Or, you know, oh, why do they do it like that? You know, was there, were there people that were, you know, turning their nose up at disco? Was it Was it something that was polarizing?
1: um we couldn't tell at first at first it seemed like it was the most exciting thing in the world i mean there was nothing
0: so there wasn't kind of
1: r&b heads going oh why are you well we were those guys (laughs) (laughs) we did that at first i mean we we were like on who wants to play this but we we had to um i wanted to be a straight-ahead jazz guy I, i i didn't necessarily hate it but I almost thought you were supposed to not like it. It was, a, it was a guilty pleasure. You know, you couldn't act like you liked Herbie Mann playing hijack. You couldn't act like you, you know, you know, you liked your famous jazz guys doing, mm. you know. But th- th- I
0: think the other thing that is hard, and it's hard in pop music today, it's hard to release positive songs without them being sickly or cheesy. And you manage to do it so well. You know, there's not a p- element of them that goes... You know, it's easier, I think, to write Melancholy, or, you know, Woe Is Me, right. or Baby Broke My Heart, or, you know, to write upbeat songs that say, hey, it's all right to have fun.
1: Right. It's hard to do. It is hard to do, especially... Um, especially when things in society don't reflect that. And, and I've always had... Um, When when I had this seismic shift and it came from one of my jazz teachers who really embarrassed the hell out of me one day. I was getting ready to go do a boogaloo gig as I called it, and I had a sour look on my face. And he said, Nah, what's what's wrong with you? And I said, Well, I gotta go do this bullshit boogaloo gig He said, Wow, a bullshit gig? What 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 to him like no gigs like you got a gig mm-hmm. <laughs> all gigs are great like well, how can you do a bad gig especially if you haven't played it yet and I said well look at these songs that we got to play uh, the band leader called me up and told me I need to n- learn these songs for the show tonight and he said so what's wrong with those songs and I said you know they're bullshit pop songs they're bullshit boogaloo songs you know he says w- w- what do you mean and I said well. Look, look at this set list. And he looked at me and he said, Niall, what makes you think you're the ultimate consumer? All of these songs are million sellers. So these millions of people are wrong, but you're right. And I said, what do you mean, Ted? He says, every last one of these songs are great. I says, what do you mean they're great? He says, these are great compositions. I said, look, this first song we got to play, Sugar Sugar by the Archies. You call that a great composition? He looked at me and he said, Of course. And I went, Sugar, do, 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 Oh, honey, honey, do, 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 Are you my candy girl? And you, you call that a great composition? He said, Absolutely. He said, Sugar, Sugar's been number one for like five or six weeks. And then I said, For this cheesy, corny bubble gum. And he said to me something that, changed my life in one split second he says he says I disagree with you I think it's a great composition and I said why the hell would you call sugar sugar a great composition he says because it speaks to the souls of a million strangers I went wow it speaks to the souls of a million strangers a million people that would never know you, that you will never meet, love what you just did. Holy cow. That's what I wanna write. Music that a million people I will never re- meet will love what I just did. And um, two weeks later I wrote, everybody, damn <laughs> dude, that's, that's exactly what an amazing <laughs>
0: lesson to learn so early on as well. What a beautiful feeling to know that you're soundtracking people's, you know, whatever party it is. You know, you're you're there giving them this thing, you know.
1: It was an amazing lesson to me because what he taught me about was what is at the essence of our art form or any art form. It's communication. You want people to see your work, to hear your work. That's what you do it for. If you're a great ballerina... You don't just dance at home for yourself. You want to be part of a company and be out yeah. there gigging. Uh, as soon as you're writing
0: and then recording your
1: music and
0: then releasing it, you're saying you want somebody to hear to it. hear it. So why Correct. wouldn't you want it to be the most? <laughs> the big, I never understand yes. it. Uh,
1: ex- you are, man, I love you, dude. That's <laughs> exactly right. You want it to be bigger than anything. Like, that's what you want. Like, why would you want it to be small? Like, I, he's, bro, I know how to write small records, no problem. I got a million friends that that's all they do is write small records because they don't know how to write big records. They don't know how to get over that thing. They think that somehow what I used to call a great composition is going to be a hit record. And I learned very young that a great composition is not a hit record uh, but a hit record is a great composition yeah yeah yeah.
0: and it's about it's about getting rid of inhibitions and it's hard to do you know it's, it, yeah. it's but once you can work that out it's a beautiful thing
1: i think it's an amazing thing it's 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 incredible to wake up in the morning with like, like you know i always tell people that you know they go oh no you're such a great songwriter and i go no no i'm not i'm a great song rewriter, because usually the first thing I wrote is the worst thing you ever heard, but somehow I'm able to work on it long enough where it turns into something that goes do 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 clap your hands or whatever. Yeah, on this
0: this track, I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but something happens uh, in the early 80s and, you know, Chic go their separate ways. And, right. th- and you come back together in the '90s, but there's this period of time <laughs> where you are working by yourself. Right. And there's a lot of production work that you do for other artists right. in that. What that's the exact same thing, you know, bringing the biggest song you can to however many people. You did time and time again.
1: Right. Um, because I was rewriting every one of those songs but the, but, that everybody but, but brought but to me.
0: What uh, it is a different set of skills to be able to produce and have an artist walk in a room and understand what it is that person needs or how they're going to want to work. And Mm. did all of that come naturally to you?
1: Yeah, because I knew what my job was, that I knew that I wanted to speak to the soul of a million strangers. And I always kept that as my credo. That was my motto. I want to write songs for this person that can get out there and talk to a lot of people. So you have to consider the entire marketplace. Hmm, what group are they trying to connect with? How do I connect with their fan base? Is it a legit fan base or is it one that we now have to make from scratch? Um, Sister Sledge, we had to make that from scratch. Fine with us because we knew that we had some kind of fan base and we knew where those people lived. Just give them another song. Give them more music like that. when I met in excess, it was like, I met them and I just loved them as musicians. Um, I didn't hear any hit songs, but I liked them as musicians. So then when we got into the studio and we did Original Sin, it was like, hey, dude, let's change this to this and change this to that. Because we want to speak to the soul of a million strangers. That was right after I had just done David Bowie's "Let's Dance." I mean, like right after. And then I did the Reflex with uh, Duran Duran and basically, I remade the reflex um, and they said, "Would I remix it?" I was like, i don't know how to remix I'm not a mixer mm. uh, I'm a writer I'll rewrite it <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you can call it whatever you want to call it But yeah. i'm a you know, it was uh, Bob Clearmount was doing the mixing i'm writing i'm you know i'm I'm giving the format and changing the song and stuff uh, um but uh,
0: it was a few years ago you played on the Pyramid stage at Glastonbury mm-hmm. and I had played the day before on the Saturday mm-hmm. and um, me and my girlfriend had made the decision to go home Saturday night about 2 or 3 in the morning on the tour bus mm-hmm. and come back to London and uh, we turned the TV on on Sunday and we are like, oh, you know, who are we missing? Did we make a mistake coming home? Was this a bad idea? And just as we were saying this, your set began... And we, neither of us have ever been so pissed off, we were going to look like the best party ever, and this is where this period comes into, it was just a hit after hit after hit, and then you invited everyone on stage, there was nobody wasn't smiling other than me and my girlfriend, sat in London, (laughs) going, what are we doing? And there was a point we were going, how do you get from London to Glastonbury before it's finished? It just... But it was such a pleasure to watch, even from the comfort of our own sofa. And that, what you're saying, it was these songs that you're able to play, that you've worked with so many different artists... Is that something you look forward to doing when you go on stage? It's
1: like, That's, I'm not going to play B-sides. I'm just, come on, let's yeah, do it. The- yeah, no. It's, you know, I, I never remember um, what reviewers say about our band because um, most of the time it's good, but whenever we get a bad review, I don't really pay attention to it because it's like, to me, it's sort of the same. You know, a- anybody can have an opinion about something and it's fine. Um but the one review that I remember, and I remember it really well, was when Green Day uh, put out American Idiot, and we were invited to play Rothschilder, and the, the promoter didn't know that we were a band. They thought we were like DJs or a group of whatever, like DJ bass and maybe had rappers or a guitar player. They didn't quite know what Chic was, really. So they booked us in the, in the DJ tent, and so Green Day played American Idiot and they killed and it was like jamming. Mm-hmm. And the next day I read the review of the Ross Gilda gig and the re- reviewer said, wow, we went to see D- uh, Green Day and it was fantastic. They blew the police away. But before we decided to leave, we just went over and we popped into DJ's tent so we could hear Sheik play La in Good Times. Well, now Rogers proceeded to play an hour of number one hits. Oh, and then he played La Freaking Good Times. I was like, going, wow, that's the coolest <laughs> review ever. <laughs> he played an hour of No one hits. Oh, and then he played La Freakin' Good Times. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but it must just feel so When you're side of stage before the gig begins, last week we played Litham, and you played the night after us. Right, Um. Yeah. um Um, but just before you go on stage is there you still get excited and pumped up to go out and play these songs for everybody yeah it's a a blast we love it yeah I bet
1: we have so much fun like I I always say um, we're like you know we're like the Grateful Dead of dance music because we're a totally live band we have no click tracks no secret backing nothing we just go out and play whatever you hear is generated from those nine people standing on that stage and I always say that if we can't play it, um, it ain't gonna be on my record. So Mm -hmm. I can make records that you can't play, but why would I do that? Mm -hmm. I I, at some point wanna play my record, play my songs. Mm -hmm. So um, it's, it's a little bit tricky for us in today's world because we go, well, we say we do dance music, but dance music today with most of the artists that I work with, uh, when they go out and do the songs, they have to take my guitar parts and play them yeah. and stuff like that. Um, whereas, like if you if you see us play "Get Lucky," we do it the way we do it because that's how she would play it. You yeah. know what I mean? We we have a whole interpretive thing uh, to it. It's it's not quite the same because. Um, we, you know, we don't need uh, any kind of sequencing or yeah. anything like that, you know. And Russell goes into the folk stuff live and we go jamming. you yeah. know. Amazing. And, yeah, it's, uh, we, we, have, we have fun playing dance music. We uh, have fun playing live dance music.
0: I, um, you just mentioned Get Lucky. There was a time where I was visiting my record label in London. Mm-hmm. And they had some promotional Get Lucky condoms. So I was like, I'm going to take one of them. And I've still got it on the oh, side. i nice. toyed with the idea of bringing it along, but I thought, no, I don't I think that <laughs> might be cool. a bit too weird. Yeah, I thought that was brilliant. I just don't think I'll be able to pull it off. <laughs> George Ezra for condoms. <laughs> so, and so today, you know, we're here at Abbey Road. You're set up here, you know, working here a lot at the moment. Yeah, the moment.
1: we're killing it. It's so great here, man. This is like you know, Disneyland, for me, there's nothing that I've been able to think of and suggest that I get any pushback from uh, The Powers That Be. We've done, we're working on, like, three little short films here. We do song after song after song with whatever artist comes in. And, Mm -hmm. I mean, everybody from, you know, Anderson Pop to Georgia Smith to um to kongs to i mean we we're having a blast i mean just killing and you're
0: working to you know i to, as we said at the beginning you know you were okay in masters just now for the the new album that's right, going to yeah. come out um you, will you tour that album
1: yeah 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 at some point in time so what we like to do um we don't believe in Pushing songs down people's throats. That's not my philosophy. This is something I learned from Bernard. Um, Bernard was a live show is a live show. (laughs) A record Mm -hmm. is a record. A live show, our philosophy is to go out there and make people happy. And when we first started, most people went to see live shows to hear new music now most people go to live shows to hear songs they know they don't go to you're right it's changed yeah it's weird to us but like when we play in japan it's sort of like refreshing because we get to play wacky stuff we get to play whatever we want we get to play like you know jazzy stuff and cool you know but to the western audiences and pan and america phew it's a good thing I have a set list that I can look at and go like, okay, out of these 30 or 40 songs, what do you want to play tonight? Well, what what do we think will work best in St. Louis? Let's play these songs. Um, So we have such a deep set list of recognizable songs that um, we can really play for almost any audience. We don't, like, I always say... um, and I don't know why this doesn't happen. Maybe they don't want to give us enough money or whatever. But I always say, "There's my manager sitting in the room right with us." I always say, "Man, put us on with you know, like like some of these guys who are like my best friends. Like put, put like we should be opening up for like Red Hot Chili Peppers and and all these dudes who are like my buddies. Like give me put, man, let us play before Dave Grohl. Let's see what happens then. Mm-hmm. Like, we'll smoke." That shit. <laughs> and Dave is my boy. Like, you know, yeah, let us play, you know, before you guys come out and play. Learning to fly, mm-hmm. you know, follow good times and the freak, and yeah. and you know, because to me it's just music, and it's now become pop music. It's just, you know, when I've I remember the first time I heard Let's Dance played out of the studio, and it was a hardcore punk rock club. And the only reason why they played it is because it said David Bowie on it. And then the DJ was able to listen to it, and somehow he fit it in. And I was expecting people start booing because they don't say, ladies and gentlemen, here's a new one from David Bowie. Oh, produced by Nile Rodgers. They, they just, just play, play it out. the record, right? So people were dancing, and I don't know what they were dancing to. Probably, I don't know, I'm going to just guess. They were dancing to something like, let's say even it was commercial, like, um, you know, I want candy. Okay. Uh, it was like half the tempo. Yeah. Uh, and the whole crowd stopped for a second. And it's the 12-inch, right? And the next thing you know, they're down. Of course. And, like, no one knew it was Bowie. No one knew anything. And they got down. I'm just thinking, that's what cool music does, that's what hit records do. You are adventurous, you take a shot, you go from your heart Mm -hmm. and you see if the people go for it. Mm -hmm. Because you don't know, the only barometer by which we can judge is the reaction of the people. So In the old days, bands would play a bunch of songs to see the reaction they'd get from the people and those songs would probably wind up on their next album or they were playing the album that they had just dropped, but no one knew it yet, because they couldn't afford to buy it. They just bought the single, so they were waiting for the Jackson 5 to play Dancing Machine, but they didn't know the other songs on the album yet. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's, that's the school that I come from, and it's really interesting for me to navigate new waters and say, when do i play this brand new song that nobody is gonna know yeah yeah. because i don't want to have a show like some of my friends shows where they put out an album they play a song everybody goes to the bathroom I'm like, the, i had that last summer was
0: the first because i released my second album right my first ever second album you right, know? right my first ever <laughs> yeah. second album right. and you know you happen to go uh, here's another new one because you know I need the songs in the set they right, are starting to it. be booked for more time than the first album has right right, right. yeah you just you kind of feel people go like oh <laughs> <laughs> yeah and I can, you can't blame them because especially at festivals right because that's where they're there to you know right. sing along and
1: yeah one of, one of the most heartbreaking nights of my life was uh, uh, I had just become friends with Avicii and we had been working together And I said, well, play me what you're working on now. And he played Wake Me Up For Me. And I went, whoa, that's like the coolest thing I've ever heard, bro. I said, man, if you get over with this song, you're going to blow up, man. They're going to play like EDM in Nashville and Mm -hmm. stuff. And he was like, really? not? you think it's that good? I I said, Tim, I swear to God, this shit is amazing. So now we go to Ultra. He plays it and people are booing and I'm standing on stage going oh my heart sank because I'm pumping him up saying Evichu you're going to blow everybody away people are booing him now the next year he's coming back to Ultra. I said, now drop that shit now. and see what (laughs) happens. But of course, he got sick and they had to remove his gallbladder. He never even made the stage. They named the hotel, the Avicii Hotel. I said, so one year later, right, bro? Yeah. We're coming back with the same joint that they were booing last year. Let's see what happens this year. Um, And it was just, it, it was amazing to me how I kept thinking he was going to get that everybody dance moment, Mm. that same thing that happened when I walked into that club and these people hearing for the first time everybody dance and I'm hearing it for the first time and I'm hearing these strangers Mm. respond to my song. Because to me, Wake Me Up, You, you, you get the vibe right away but maybe not. Maybe you don't really get the vibe until he goes to mm. Maybe that ain't quite doing yeah, yeah, yeah. it. But then. But even then, that night when it went into that, they were still booing. I was yeah, like, oh well, sorry Tim.
0: <laughs> so everything that we've spoken Today it's been amazing. Thank you for this. Yeah, Thank you, bro. I appreciate this, it a lot. It's great, you've, you've, you've said you know that mantra of speak to the souls of a thousand strangers. A million, brother. A million. A million. That's, that's,
1: that's oh, bring, sorry, that's well, the difference between it, me and you. <laughs> come, on, come
0: on, you don't do too
1: badly. You, you do doing all right. Yeah, yeah. He
0: says from number one in the chart. Speak to
1: the of a thousand strangers. Speak to the souls of a hundred strangers.
0: Well, have you got another <laughs> mantra you'd like to end on? I know that you've, you know, nuggets of wisdom. Is there something else? That you've kind of a mantra that you've repeated throughout your life or um anything else?
1: the the only thing that i do is try and make those songs that speak to the souls of a million strangers and i've also really really learned how to embrace the failure when that doesn't happen because most of the time i don't have those songs that speak to the soul of a million strangers. And it's not because the song isn't good enough, it's because the convergence didn't happen, because those other people who get to play that song, you know, sometimes you have to hear a song, four or five, I mean, the Avicii song is a perfect example. You see, they heard it the first time, it didn't kill him the first time. And this was his crowd. I mean, I was there, it was packed. I don't even know how many people were there, 150,000, 175, it was, it was bananas, but they booed him, and this was his crowd. Um, but they needed to hear it a few times before they saw how dope it was. Um, that's something that I know is a reality. Uh, when I was going to music school, well, my teacher used to call it internalization. It would take a long time, sometimes, before we can internalize this music. And the way that he would talk about it is he would talk about all the great masters who would go out and do their concerts. They'd do these big symphonies for the first time, and people were booing. <laughs> and uh, next thing you know, a few years later, it's like, you know, like... everybody knows and loves it but the first time you go what the hell is that so sometimes it takes time to hear music and that's why when I learned to play or when I got a record deal um, very smart guy named Amin Erdogan said to me now that's why everybody wants heavy rotation at radio because the more people hear it the more apt they are to like it See, if you just get light rotation and a person only hears it once or twice, they don't have a time. They don't have time to internalize it. But if you come out with heavy rotation and you got, you know, a, a manager who's got juice because he manages Madonna and you can get your record played, you know, five, ten spins a day, um, uh, then things can change for you. Um, So I never really had a manager until Merck, really. And so everything I did, I had to learn how to um, get radio programmers to do it on their own. And this is when radio programmers had power, Mm. when they could sit there and listen, because the person who worked at the label the head of the label just wanted you to get something added you know just get just come back and tell us what did what did the guy like you know okay well he liked uh, this song by Aretha and this song by Foxy he says well I'm great 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 and then the Foxy record would blow up and he goes well so much for Aretha you know let's put all the money behind Foxy now because the people are telling you what they like. So they go with the short thing because they got the big name, but it really may not be the song that's gonna resonate with the people. Because the people just hear it, and if they hear it five, six, seven times, they start to judge, and it becomes part of their internal mechanism. And I explained this to somebody very well uh, a couple of weeks ago in Paris. I was doing an interview and uh, the the interviewer said to me, but, "But but what do you mean?" I said, "Well, let me show you what I mean." I says when I was a child and I was studying music, early on in my, you know, development, one of the first songs I learned went. Chevalier table ronde, une femme. And the journalist, French, she starts singing right there with me. Une une No, no, no. I said, I don't even know what that shit means. It was one of the first songs I learned, and I'll never forget it. I'll, I'll be lying on my deathbed, and somebody will come over to me and start singing in my ear tout le grande, une femme sur le vent est bon. De la... une femme, oui, 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 I said, that's it. It becomes part of, it becomes part of who you are. It becomes, it's, it's in there. You, you know, my aunt was in a coma for five years. Every time we sang a Beatles song to her, she would sing it along with us. As soon as we finished the song, she'd go back into a vegetative state.
0: No way.
1: Yeah, for five years. And she even do the ad lib
0: <laughs> nah, nah, nah,
1: nah, nah, nah. It was it was hysterical. <laughs> nah, nah, nah. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> and if it was a song that had a, a riff, um you know, like uh like something like Like a Virgin and Tony Thompson goes. Like a ver tip me
0: Man, this has been brilliant. Thank you very much. You got it bro. And just like that, it is the end of yet another episode. I hope you enjoyed it. A huge thank you to Nile Rogers. Thank you very much for spending the day with me. Um, Yeah, it was just an absolute privilege. Um, I hope you are doing well wherever you are. Um, Keeping out of trouble, I'm sure. Um, A huge thank you to Warren, who helps edit this podcast together. A huge thank you. Thank you to Oshin, who is the man behind all of the graphics that you see online, uh, which bring the whole thing to life. And a huge thank you to Josh Sanger, who is the man at Closer Artists Management that help get all of this together. And um, yeah, thank you very much for all of your help to all of those guys. And of course... Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being here. Thank you for meeting me here again. If you haven't already, um, go back and check out previous episodes. I think you will love them. I've enjoyed recording each and every one of them. Um, yeah, and I hope you enjoy listening to them. If you haven't already, why not tell a friend? You know, let them know that we are waiting here with open arms and they are all welcome. Um, and of course, I just hope you are happy, whatever you are doing, wherever you are. I hope you're smiling. Hope you have an amazing year. Thank you very much for meeting me here, and I will see you next week. Bye-bye.